All right, what's up, everybody? This is A7X fan Ben, and welcome back to the Pirate CSG podcast. This is episode number 59, and I'm extremely happy and grateful to welcome one of the most special guests that I'll ever be able to have on, and that's game designer Mike Mulvihill. Thanks so much for doing this. Not a problem. This is so cool. Uh, when you make something and then it goes out there, you don't know where and how many legs it has. You just know that you put your heart and soul into it for a little while. And the fact that here we are in 2023 still talking about pirates is like one of the coolest things in the world. So uh, I'm super glad. I mean, it's been a while. So hopefully people (laughs) will forgive me for going, I don't remember that. But uh, I'm more than happy to try to answer any of your questions. Yeah, I love it. Awesome. For anyone listening that didn't see the questions thread, Mike is like one of the essential founding fathers of the game. He designed a ton of the game pieces and was heavily involved in game piece uh, creation and game mechanic creation for the majority of the sets. So he is like one of the biggest titans of the game in the history of it, along with Mike Selinker and Jordan Wiseman and others. So, um, so how did you get involved with Pirate CSG? How did it all start for you? All right, so it's less about how it started for me and, wh- and how it started, let's just say, okay? So for those who don't know my background, I was a lead designer at WizKids on both Mage Knight and Heroclix. I was the design lead created at Heroclix um, for WizKids back, whatever that was, 2001, 2002, whatever that was. Um and uh, one is so uh, my wife was actually the head of uh, was the uh, lead uh, production manager uh, for the company as well. And so she and Jordan and, uh, you know, uh, every once in a while, one of the artists or somebody would go to uh, China uh, where we did our manufacturing um, for Hero Clicks and Mage Knight. And uh, one of those trips there, Jordan uh, saw. Uh, you, you go to the factory, and of course, the factories, uh, like all factories, would tend while business would try to show you other things they're doing, and what's really cool and what's really awesome that they're doing manufacturing for somebody else. On one of the trips, uh, Jordan uh, went and saw the factory showed him that they were making the styrene plastic um, punch out. Um, uh, Gundam um, and and uh, figures uh, for basically just uh, the people who don't know the Far East, China, Japan, Hong Kong at that time, uh, the little what they call the bubble shops where you just go in and they're basically giant arcade mini stores where it's thousands of collectible types of things in little bubbles that you just um, buy. They were selling these packs of make a robot. There's no game involved. There's no mechanics. They were just, you know, 25 different robots that you can make using this styrene thing. Well, Jordan brought them back, and we played with them for a little while to see if there's something we can do with it, if there was some sort of game we can make. And we didn't really – we had we owned Battletech, and that was going to be our next big push. So we were not interested in doing anything with the robot stuff. So Jordan, um, and the genius that he is, uh, wouldn't let it go, and he bounced it around uh, with a couple of other ideas. Uh, meanwhile, my full-time job at that time was Heroclix, and I was also designing Mage Knight sets at the same time, so I had a full gig. <laughs> um, so I was not uh, uh, you know, uh, available to do any internal concepting with him, but he bounced some ideas off of me. One of them was, pi- was like pirate ships. Um, you you have to understand this thing about Jordan. Jordan finds singular individuals in history to be really, really fascinating. Hmm. Um, and what, no, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, it's not a, there's no insult there. It's just that there are singular people in history that he will deep dive into their lives and their, and their background because their story is really, really great. If anybody who's ever read the three musketeers and, and, and knows Alexander Dumas, you should read and look into his background. It is insane. Jordan has always wanted to do something about his background. One of them, in this same kind of uh, phase of Jordan's, was Captain Morgan, um, uh, the the pirate captain. The name, the guy they named a rum after, because he like switched sides like eleven thousand times in his life, 
he was actually the governor of Jamaica, I think, at one point, or at least one of the city ports, and was like, you know, hailed as this representative for the Spanish government. Meanwhile, he was also a pirate, you know, at the same time. It's just really crazy um, history. Jordan just loves history. And so when he started doing, you know, he was reading or doing some studying on, on him, and Pirates of the Caribbean was being talked about or at least you know that very first trailer i mean really seriously i know it's kind of weird now to go back and watch that first trailer but just sitting in a movie theater in 2000 and whatever three and you're sitting there and you see the guys change from skeleton to human when the moon shifts you know uh it was unbelievable and Jordan's also a really big Disney fan. So Pirates of the Caribbean as a ride, as a concept, was always a thing that he wished he'd, he would be able to do something like that. So he ended up uh, um, ended up hiring out of the company, um, uh, Mike Seliker. And um, oh, my God, he's going to kill me for not remembering his name. Um, James Ernest. Uh, James, James is like, he's like a good friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> James, uh, to come up with a concept if we did this styrene thing with pirate ships. Uh, when it got point got down to the point where Jordan's actually asking the factory, hey, if we did pirate ships, you know, can you show, how would we do this? And we had the same, we had the problems that, you know, that are relatively known now, which is the plastic doesn't bend, it snaps. So if we do, what's the angle of bend that we can do without breaking them? What's the what's the cut size that allows a, a mass to stand there and not tip over? You know, uh, all those kinds of things. And how would we do more, you know, different ships? So he was doing that and James and, and, and Mike came in with the game. Now, a thing you need to also understand about Jordan and my relationship goes way back to the FASA days where I was uh, in charge of Shadowrun and before that worked on all of the various FASA games. Jordan always brought things to me to be his first, like, uh, guinea pig um, person. So at, at, at WizKids, I think I've touched all but one game. One game was a board game very later in the process. I don't even know if Jordan, uh, but if Jordan was involved, brought me in to do it and, and get it. Um, I saw I saw Hero Clicks or I saw Mage Knight before they even did the first set. I played it. I talked to him about it. So this was our relationship going way back. So when he got the game concept in from Mike and James, he had me go through it and do a pass. Uh, and that was uh, day one, I guess, of being involved in Pirates for me because uh, I did my pass. I gave Jordan my notes. Jordan met with them. Then uh, they we got a second pass in, and I had some more notes. And then Jordan's like, look, I'm getting out. You are in charge of this. You talk to them. Uh, at that point, you know, uh, he's like, if you give the thumbs up, we'll move it forward. We'll sign them. You know, we'll we'll complete the contract with them. And then, uh, you know, you got a new game to work on while you're here. <laughs> it, unfortunately, it was the same. So I had stopped working on Hero Clicks when we hired Seth, and I stopped working on Mage Knight. But I was making a game uh, at the same time. Uh, I was making th uh, two other games, uh, Shadowrun game, uh, which was Shadowrun Duels, which used, like, uh, action figure-sized miniatures or, or figures, I guess, and a baseball game. And now I had a third game. So it was not like, and I, a number one personal story. I love pirates. So I was like, yeah, I want to do this. Don't give this game to anybody else on the team. But B, I was also like, oh my God, you know, where does this fit in my schedule? Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, you know, from uh, 0.0 to basically 1.0 in the, in the story of, uh, the pirate C CSG. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. That's really fascinating. So you were in on it from like the very start along with Mike and James. So yeah. Well, yeah. Need to need to clarify how games get made a little bit. Yep. Mike and James were hired to make a game. They were never hired to work on a game. Yep. So, uh, so think about it this way for people who don't know the process. Uh, let's say we're making a Formula One car and you invented a car. Okay, that's great, but it, that car doesn't go 222 miles an hour or whatever it is. Uh, it doesn't have all the steering. It doesn't have all the stuff. 
my job is to take your car and turn it into the 225 mile an hour, you know, precision instrument. So when Mike and James turned over that, whatever we want to call it, 1.0, 2.0 version of the rules, their rules, and I met with them and I got their input, I then go back to Jordan and say, okay, what game do you want? Because he's the guy who's one paying my salary. And if he doesn't like the game, then we're never, it's never coming out. So my job then is to synthesize their rules. They really only had the rules, and I don't even know they had a full complement of ships. I think they had enough ships for playing, maybe a little bit more. I think they may have had a 1.0 or a 0.5 version of a spreadsheet math. Um, and like I said, I know Mike and James, and we've worked together in since then a million times. So this was not even the first time I worked with him. I think I worked with James while I was at FASA on something. It was the first time I was really working with Mike, uh, even though we we knew each other for, for years by that point. Um, but they're done at that point. They don't do anything more after they turned over those rules. Um, that becomes all in-house in our design decisions. And and in this case, my design decisions, but with Jordan, Jordan was really heavy on set one because he had a he had a vision for what he wanted the game to be. So I would I would meet with him like weekly or twice a week. Uh, then I would take his notes. I'd flesh out the system. I was doing the redoing the spreadsheet to make it do the things we wanted, making decisions that we needed. And then because my job, Mike and James's job was not to make a product. Their job was to make the concept for a product. And my job is to turn their concept and Jordan's idea into a concept that whiz kids could sell. I mean, like when it's all said and done, there's some core elements that the game that I'm very, very proud of that were basically synthesized from what Jordan was telling me in one ear and what Mike and James designed in the other ear. But that's the that's the way the that's the way all the game processes work. Uh, an inventor of a game turns it over to a publisher and the publisher's job is to make it a make the game a product if you will i mean to use like really kind of less sexy words <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that all makes um, total sense. oh so yeah so that was yeah so yes i was there at the beginning uh decisions made you can point at me and blame me uh i will tell you why i made them i think if i can remember and then we we have you guys playing the game 20 some years later and so that's actually cool cool 12 yeah. years later 15 i'm not yeah. sure i don't really remember any of the dates i barely can remember monday of this week so um you know hopefully i can put things into levels of perspective on yeah. that front yeah absolutely yeah that all makes total sense um so other than those big three uh WizKids folks at the start and Seth Johnson what other WizKids employees did you work with on Pirate CSG uh well Seth worked Seth never he worked on Pirates and so so the process would have been like this uh let's say making a set outside of the first set because like I said Jordan was very heavily involved and Mike and 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 James were involved in creating the initial you know factions and units and all that kind of stuff um so I would have done the uh, the bulk of the concept. So it was my job to concept every set, which meant that I either had to find a new faction or a new ship type. At that point, I worked with a guy named oh two. Well, at the beginning, I worked with um, uh, uh, um, uh, Shane Hartley, who's the art one of the art directors at at uh, Wizkids. Uh, and Shane and I still work together, which is crazy. All these years later, we're both at Ravensburger. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and a guy named uh, Ethan Pasternak, he was ended up being what we would call the graphic designer, the guy who actually laid the pieces out on the plastic. So if I wanted, for instance, the, the, the Chinese junks, or if I wanted the, the Norse uh, ships or news ships like schooners and things like that, or the forts, Actually, the forts were designed in for set one, and we didn't like the way they work, so we pulled them from set one. Um, and you know, so we he would have been the one laying out the, the cards, trying to see it works. Then we would work with like either my wife or somebody named Tina Wegner, who was our production person, who would take those those things, get them off to China, so that we can see whether or not the plastic worked. This is the reason why. Um, you know, stuff changes over the time from, you know, ship to ship because we needed to do 
do that. Then Ethan would have been in charge with a bunch of other artists. Shane and Ethan would have been in charge with the painting and the looks. I did all the research. Uh, so like if we want, you know, find out what color the French painted their ships as a base versus what color the British painted their ships as a base, you know, um, and, and, uh, you know, if we wanted anything crazy weird like that, um, uh, and that's how every set was done up until when I left, um, other people, uh, Jason, Michael wrote a bunch for me. It was just really hard to both do the design and the writing and work on other games. So I would outline, Hey, we're doing a Norse faction. Can you give me, you know, five miscellaneous North Norse guys or, uh, you know, um, fiction for 10 ships, you know, or something like that. Uh, uh, Seth, I will state, I totally forgot until you sent me the, I, Seth is a huge, huge uh, Jules Verne fan. So yeah. the whole, that Jules Verne set that came from Seth just pillaring me with, when are you going to do a Jules Verne set? When are you going to do a Jules Verne set? You know, um, and so uh, that, those were mine, but like, you know that those were his stuff at the, uh always a forever remember um uh, uh Kelly Bonilla yeah. uh one I knew her from the Chicago days that's how long I knew her and she was working for us uh she would come in and do uh at the beginning she would organize all my testing for me uh internally and um Later, we ended up with, uh, and then there were a couple of brand managers that worked on the games as well, um, and uh, whose names I can't remember because at that time I was really not a fan of brand managers. They usually work with marketing, like Tiffany and um, and stuff like that. I was not, I I could not borrow the trouble of working with marketing just because I was being stretched so thin while I was working at WizKids. So, uh, but I knew them all. I mean, so there's a, there's a good percentage of people. Like Jordan wrote a lot of the first set, again, because he had done all this research into Captain Morgan. So he had that kind of mindset. He knew, he knew some names and he knew some situations and he knew some shenanigans from doing all that research. So he wrote most of Spanish Maine. Um, then I wrote, uh, I, then I took over most of the writing for Crimson Coast. I think maybe he did some of the characters and I did most, I did almost all the ships and, and uh, that then when we went and started adding new navies, uh, he basically passed that off to me. So when the, the Americans come in in revolution and, um, and then the Barbary pirates, the Mediterranean pirates uh, in Barbary coast, the Japanese and, and uh, uh, Norse and all that kind of stuff, that was all me. So uh, doing the research and finding it and then hiring writers like Jason or Seth or Kelly, I know, did some writing. I know she did some mechanic stuff, too, as the games, games went on. Uh, but, yeah, a lot of people. It's not a one-man operation. I mean, I may say, you know, it may end up pointing to me to be the final guy, but that's only – I mean, I'm pretty sure the art guys threw in some suggestions, too, um, uh, as well. It's, it's a much – it's a – I'm a what I would call myself a social designer, meaning I'm going to ask people a lot of questions. You know, is this right? Is this wrong? Do I go here? Do I go there? You know, what what do you think? You know, I'll end up being the guy who makes the final call, but I want as much input as possible. And on the fiction, we had a ton of fiction writers at our leisure. So, yeah, awesome. I think that kind of I think that I, I don't even remember the question. I'm just talking. Yeah. <laughs> so you, at any time that you go, okay, Mike, uh, stop talking. Uh, we'll we'll figure out the next next phase. Yeah, no, that was great. That was amazing, and I'm glad I've heard of uh, I think just about all those folks by now. So yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, yeah, there was um, uh, Tiffany took over brand from. I don't remember who the first brand person was. On I don't know if it was like Dara or Shana. I can't remember. Um, Shana was never brand at our company. She yeah. was a pure marketing. Um, I don't know anybody named Dean. What's her name? Now now I'm going to hunt it down because you just sent it to me. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about it. I know Tiffany mentioned the previous, uh, brand manager. Yeah, she was not there. She was not on that game very long on Pirates very long. Like I said, I mean, at that point now, you got to remember we had, we were, you know, Hero Clicks was on such a rapid clip 
Uh, Mage Knight was uh, kind of coming out. We had Battletech come out at the same time. Uh, we had the Shadowrun Duels game. We had the Major League Baseball game, which had a different brand manager. Uh, um, then once the success of this pocket, uh, uh, pocket model game, I was also then do, working on NASCAR at the same time. So, you know, it was it, and then we were doing research on a couple of other games. There was a board game we did, two board games we did, I guess. Uh, and that, not the Pirates one, that was a whole different thing. Yep. So, yeah, it was kind of, uh, it was, there were only four true game developers at any time. Um, and it was just how we divvied up the work. Uh, usually there was a lead. Like I was the lead on Pirates and MLB and Shadowrun. I was used to be the lead on Heroclix, but then we then John Lifehouser took over Heroclix, and then Seth took that over. When I um, Scott um, uh, Scott, what's that? D'Agostino? No, Scott. Um, oh my God, man. This is where it's all going to fall apart. People are going to think, <laughs> okay. why did you talk to this crazy guy who's insanely not answering any of your questions correctly? Uh, uh, Scott, uh, uh, I can't remember his last name, but Scott took over Mage Knight from me. Mm-hmm. I was the first developer on Mage Knight. Scott took that over from me. I was the first developer on Hero Clicks. John took that over. That went to Seth. John kind of went to work with... Um, uh, uh, Jordan and uh, uh, the head of game development there was a guy named Jim Long and Jim kind of mm-hmm. oversaw all of us and John ended up being more like a kind of an assistant to him and kind of a, a think tank guy you know okay. we kind of went over and, and, and worked with him on, on new game ideas and new concepts yeah. then I did uh, well I did uh, uh, Pirates until it was till I was no longer there and I think Kelly took over it after me that would have been logical i I don't know what happened after i was there um and then uh let's see there was oh there was like and then we would do uh kelly was in charge of like alien or uh, horror clicks that did like alien and stuff and then i i ended up getting roped back into the clicks games and worked on halo clicks Mm -hmm. uh so for a while and then um and that was I was doing pirates. I remember working on Halo when I was doing Pirates of the Caribbean set, the okay. the Disney tie-in set. Nice. Um, and then, uh, but by that time, baseball I think was over. There were a couple of prototype things going on at that same time. Um, hmm. But yeah, nice. I mean, just it's crazy. I mean, it's yeah, there's like a lot a, of people. Really it's like a weird. Uh, it's weird, like tapestry. It's like everybody only ever sees the full quilt at the end, yep. but nobody knows that everybody was making little parts of it all over the place to yep. try to get it there and helping out and and you know, I mean, although the crazy thing is, all those people are still my friends. Yeah. So that's yeah, how tight we were uh, working uh, on all this stuff at the same time. Yeah, so. that's part of why I like doing these interviews because you find out like little snippets that a lot of the current community would never otherwise know. So it's really great to hear the insider knowledge. So um, what percentage of all the pirates game pieces did you design? If you could estimate <laughs> like 80%. Uh, okay. So I, I let the first set, uh, like I said, James and, and Mike did the majority of the initial concepting. I don't know, like in the big picture, if I can give that one a percentage, because there were a lot of hands in that one. So it was yeah. those two guys, it was me, it was Jordan. Um, and, and then we, you know, we have to make decisions based on product. So Mike and Mike and James would, wouldn't have been a part of that. Um, uh, we had to make decisions based on, uh, you know, making sure the game worked, you know, once it, because again, an inventor only tests with the people that we tell them to test with. So they tested the game themselves. They did not go out to like a full, testing path of people who've never played the game people who didn't understand the game and so i mean that's one of the big things i'm sure james will uh, it's it was a it was a an issue at the time and it was still an issue jordan still brings it up to me they had designed a game to be one is the best result and six is the worst result and that's fine that's math doesn't really matter on a d6 it's still 16 percent is going to be you know uh, a miss or a hit, you know, however it was. The problem with that is when you took that to testing, every player who rolled the dice and got a six would be like, yeah. And then they were like, oh, six is bad. Oh, 
<laughs> or they would roll a one and they would go, ah, oh. and you, and you'd be like, no, that's an automatic hit. Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, yay. You know, <laughs> there was like such a huge player disconnect, perceptional disconnect. This is the thing that, that goes on all the time in games. It's not like James made a mistake. He did the logic numbers. It just made sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the concept you and I can sit here and we can come up with an awesome game concept, awesome new characters, awesome new ships, whatever it is. The minute you show it to somebody, you have to not be in the room. You have to explain it to them one time. They have to do it. Cause I can't ship Ben to everybody's house to mm-hmm. explain nuance. You know, yeah. well, it has to be explainable in a set of rules. It has to be simple enough that it fits the other set of rules that already exist. And all I kept, so when I met him on the second pass, I'm like, dude, is there any way we can change the dice? And, and and they were like James is like doesn't matter and I'm like no but it does matter it doesn't matter mathematically you are absolutely correct yeah. it matters not a whit mathematically and for the gameplay it doesn't matter it's literally the perception at the table every time somebody rolls a die to for them to not realize that I rolled the highest value that should be good you know, and then in order for us to convince people over time that that would have been the case, we would have had to add like flavor paragraphs of like, you know, something when in reality, everybody defaults to one being the worst, six being the best, yep. <laughs> you know. And so we, we ended up going through this and I, I don't know, uh, you know, and so that was a big thing. But in doing that, we also wanted to have an auto hit. Or an auto miss, excuse me. I can't remember which one. Maybe do we have both in there now? I can't remember. No, just the auto miss on ones. Yeah, the auto miss. In order to have the auto miss, though, we were running into a problem that we didn't have enough room for hits. You know? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, uh, especially with a you know base of a three four kind of thing, you know, area on a D six. Um and so <laughs> And so I made the rule that you uh, have to exceed the value yep. on the die. You can't tie. Ah, uh, dude, I Jordan like I felt like one time he just called me in, and he was. I was showing these people a game, and I didn't know this rule. This rule should never exist. It's like he is angry with me, and I'm like, but I have to have it. If we don't have it the game falls apart. It becomes something else. And, and he was like, this is the worst rule. And then it went out and we explained it and everybody was like, nobody even bats an eye anymore. But it was such a new thing because again, that was also public perception. You know, ties, you ties go to the runner to use a baseball thing. Cause I was doing baseball at the same time. Yep. You know, that's what you think. Well, it ties a hit. And I'm like, no, but it needs to exceed it. Otherwise we don't have enough misses in the game. Everybody hits all the time. And <laughs> it was like, it was like, it wasn't, uh, once you explain it to players, they get it. it. You couldn't explain one versus six because that's, that's a roll of dice instant reaction. But you could explain that you you could just state in the rules you need to be higher than the number and people accept it as as things. So no one in pirates goes when they were playing the game questioned that because it was clearly stated as a rule. And that's the other weird thing about games: games have made up rules. So as long as the game is consistently logical with its made up rules, you are consistently logical playing by them. So yeah, it was uh, it was there there were like stuff like that that was like calls i had to make versus calls that were handed down jordan's jordan's mandate from day one was you have to play the game out of the pack so we actually had to come up with two sets of rules one is hey open up this pack give somebody a ship and you take a ship and now you go and play it's not a very fun game it's not you know but it taught you the rules you can play it for 395 that was a big you know People don't know this little factoid as well, and it goes even to my job today. Price matters, and you consumer always go, "Oh no, I'll pay anything for that." And the answer is, "No, you won't." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you you don't you don't really. Um, so you know, we were like, you know, for three four ninety five a pack. I mean, we really really wanted to do something like that for Hero Clicks as well. We never, I don't think, pulled the trigger on that. Uh, that's where the whole idea started. If you bought a booster pack and you could be a single game out of the booster pack, that would be awesome. We never could get all the parts to work on that. Um, 
in fact, I was just talking to Seth about it the other night when we met. But it's like, what you know, you know, what are the big takeaways that that I had to deal with? And one of them was I had to make sure that it was a, a playable game out of each pack. And like I said, it's not very effectively playable game out of every pack, but you can learn the rules. You get it. You you could sell your ship around and move them around. And then when you bought a second pack and you started making your own navies, then it was actually you know had that secondary you know uh, jolt of excitement. But, you know, that was the goal. And so that's something Mike and James never had to worry about. That was not on their parameters. That was on me making a product parameters. So, uh, so Pirates of the Spanish Main, um, uh, let's just say that that was 25, 25, 25, and 25. How's that for politically correct? Yeah. Um, <laughs> after Pirates of the – and they, they may have concepted forts. I don't think we had any built – I can't. I can't remember. That's the reason why Crimson Coast doesn't have any. Uh, Crimson Coast added the French, right? Um, yep. Yeah, and the and the forts. Um, yeah, and so is, from from Crimson Coast from Crimson Coast on to when I was done, which I just realized I think was either Ocean's Edge or Rise of the Fiends. Um, I was uh, like ninety. Well, from a concept standpoint, it was one hundred percent a concept for me. After that, it becomes a. Um, you know, who was assigned what in, in doing stuff. So, like, obviously any of that. Uh, actually, that's not true. It's probably more Pirates of the Spanish Main is the, more like 520% because uh, Shane and the art team, you know, the look okay. and feel of the game is incredible. Yeah. So they're, 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 they're an equal 20%, if you will. So uh, after that, it's probably concepting. It's like 100% me until – and then uh, from the product standpoint – probably like 75% me, 25% the art team. And then, uh, and then in after basically probably beginning with revolution, um, cause Jordan had, had a lot of leftover writing that he, we used in Crimson Coast. Uh, but after revolution, it was probably on a product standpoint, it was probably me. Uh, so con- concept is like 90%, 10% art team. And then after that, it's probably, I'm like, I guess, 75% me on everything. And then 25% with, um, uh, you know, other writers helping me out. Um, nobody did ship design. I did 100% of all the ship design, like the mechanics. Yep. Um, and then and then I get play tester feedback. Um, and then, uh, but the, a lot of the fiction writing I, and the art obviously is not me, um, but the fiction writing I, I farm out. And then when I come up with a concept for a different kind of ship, then I would sit with Ethan and we'd, he would do all the heavy lifting, i.e. art. Uh, you don't want me drawing anything. So, um, uh, that was the process through all yeah. those sets. So it sounds like from Crimson Coast until maybe either Caribbean or Rise of the Fiends, you were basically 100% of, like, ship stats and abilities, like the actual gameplay. Yeah, play, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, right 100%. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Oh. This, uh, carry, it's uh, it's, it's kind of cool uh, to be in charge of a game like that and, and to be in charge of it moving forward. I mean, so, I mean, that's, like I said, you there's good things in it you can say hey good job mike if there's bad things in it you can say you screwed up and a lot of times i'll go yeah i did (laughs) and sometimes i'll be like i don't remember screwing up but if you say so uh um and then like and then decisions product decisions are weird just so you know ben in the sense that like what sets got reprinted versus when we change from the narrow mass to the the uh uh, 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 the, the, um, uh, the connected uh, sales basically. Yeah. The connected sale masts, yep. you know, when we, when we made that change, um, uh, that kind of stuff, you know, there's reasons why all those things were done. Some of them were in my, you know, some of them came from outside my camp, but they would come to me to say, Hey, is this okay to do? I mean, effectively I'm the director, I guess, or showrunner if yep. you will. I'm involved with everything, except in this case, for this game, I was also involved in the writing, if you will, the mechanics. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Makes sense. Uh, was there always a concrete formula for making the point costs for the game pieces? And if not, when did it come into being? And if, if No, it, sure. okay, so Hero, so WizKids, that's a really great question. WizKids' basis was 
antithetical, if you will, to what was happening in the card game market. All right, in the card game market, what you do, what the initial card games, so all the card games, and it didn't matter which one, they were, they were, there's a thing called the hockey stick, which is you find this kind of curve picture of like, here are all the low cost cards, and as they go up in, in power, they would tend to go up in cost. They're in, in gameplay cost, if you will. So, yep. you know, how much mana does a card need is dependent on how powerful the play, the game designers think it is. But that's all eyeball, okay? Yeah. So there's yeah. no, there's yeah. no like, this power costs 0.5 of a point or 0.75 of a point. When WizKids created Mage Knight, they created it. It was some Microsoft guys, some computer game guys, some high end, some math guys, <laughs> <laughs> and they created a uh, formula. Yep. And the formula w- was like every stat has a value, but in order to create a value, you need a zero point. Okay. So instead of it being hockey stick, it was more of a plotted out. X, Y, Z kind of chart, like a th- almost three-dimensional kind of, or four four grids, like a minus X and X, minus X, Y, minus Y kind of chart, where you were gridding somebody, uh, and, and then how they were, and how they were affected during different parts of the game for hero clicks because it had a dial and and not everybody had the same number of dials. But in order to make that all work, you need a zero point, if you will, Uh, for Mage Knight, for all those who know Mage Knight, there's a character in the very, 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 very first set called the Kasman Fuser. He was a ranged dwarf that had basically the plainest, boringest stats. He was the zero point. So when they built their spreadsheet for that game, they said, these are all the values that are worth zero. If you go down from that stat, you gain points back, if you will. If you go up from that value, you gain, it costs you more. So everything was based off of this standard singular figure. And that was our mindset when we did, um, when we did hero clicks, we used the same thing. And we made other changes to that core uh, process we had to because superheroes don't you know superman never loses any powers you know <laughs> even if he's on his last click he's still superman so we had to change other formula to make that all work and that's why those values were different i think now they all use one one set of numbers although i could be wrong i, I don't know I, i'm it's even longer than i worked on hero clicks uh, or a clicks game than i've worked on pirates we used that same process for creating pirates. We needed a zero point scale character. I believe, and I'm going to be totally making this up because I don't remember. I believe it was like a two-masted English ship that had a long movement, you know? Maybe that's in the game, a singular guy. He may have been the base uh, character. Um, Interesting. And then we, and then we, we felt that we... Heroclix has a lot of other modulars, you know, other other modifiers that are not just the base powers, whether or not you're a teammate, make get you powers or not. So with pirates, what we wanted to do was um, give the factions value. The problem was, <laughs> and you'll love this from a testing standpoint, again, again, getting feedback from players, when we did Spanish or the uh spanish main and a little bit of crimson coast i think it wasn't really until uh i think the american ships came in much later what ended up happening is a the exact same spanish ship with the exact same power may be one or two points different than the british ship with the exact same everything exactly the same it's because the british had better guns we valued their that we put a modifier on their guns while with the Spanish, we put a modifier on their, um, uh, uh, I believe, speed. I think okay. they had the faster ships, and the British had the had the the better guns. And then the pirates would have no modifier because they're using used ships. They don't build their own ships; they just steal others. Yes. So they had like no powers. You know, they were they were the oh maybe it was a two masted pirate ship. 
Now that I say that out loud and not a British ship. Yeah, there's like not... a two-masted pirate ship with like the two masts would have probably just I'm literally off the top of my head thinking they both had threes as their cannons uh, with a single long movement. That may have been the base ship that we based our math on. Interesting. Um, and, I, and I don't know. I mean, somebody could probably dig and find, wait, everything seems to revolve around this. And Mike was saying all the wrong things, but I'm pretty sure it was a two masted ship, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a really long time since I even, I don't even own those spreadsheets anymore. So I couldn't even look them up and give you any, any real math data on any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so that's how we built the math formula. I think when we did the American ships, what we found, I think, was we gave them, let's see, maybe better movement. Okay. Uh, or no, maybe, car- well, we well, stayed away from a cargo benefit somewhere along the line because that ruined the game. That's, uh, and for maybe people know this because I, I know Mike talks about it all the time, uh, but I think they, the Dutch were originally in the game. Yep. And the Dutch had this huge cargo bonus. <laughs> and what ended up happening is it so imbalanced the game. It almost like there was, it was two different games. If you played without the Dutch, you had this kind of tight, almost chess like level game. You put the Dutch in and they were so fast and so good. It became chase the Dutch down game. Hmm. And it was, it was not fun because it was known this minute you sat down. And so what we ended up doing was just taking a lot of the Dutch ships, removing that modifier off and, and reusing them in, in the game because the stats were fine. It's just that bonus was so obvious, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, that it, 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 it imbalanced the game. It was like literally like two different games. And so they got, they got pulled real early on in the testing process and in the, in the, when we had it in the, in design process only because we just, Giving a bonus to cargo in a game in which the goal is to get as much gold as possible plus cargo really changed the, especially with crew and other things. Yeah. It just really imbalanced the game. Yeah. So I think it was with the Americans that I said the Americans get uh, no bonus or maybe uh, something else. And yeah. I, at that point, people didn't mind the same ship having more points. I don't know what the thought, what happened between Spanish main, well, the two Spanish mains and then Crimson Coast came out. And then when the Americans were introduced, people were just more excited about playing a new faction that was like different, had a different feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the American ships were almost all more, more or less, they were, they were the hunters of pirates. So we didn't want them to be as flat as pirates on the, the curve. We needed them to be a little bit more expensive because, you know, Yep. Fictionally, there are no American pirates. They're not about getting gold. They're about stopping everybody else. So we needed to kind of gamify that mechanic by giving, saying, "Hey, this is, they're going to have less ships out in theory than the rest of the fleets." Yeah. So that's that was the reason why they don't have a a, a modif a, ne- a, a a cheapening modifier. I yeah, don't think they, they have an. Yeah. They don't have a. They don't have a. Uh, like make things more expensive modifier. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I, that's, that's, that would be ridiculous. That's what it but, sounded um, like from an old podcast. But then Wolf confirmed that basically the American ships are like normal. And then the original four factions that came out before them got slight discounts based on their strengths. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. I don't know who Wolf is. So, I, yeah, he's he, the rules arbitrator. So, from like oh, 2006 okay. and beyond. So, yep. Oh. Cool. Um, yeah, that's really uh, fascinating. So yeah, there is a there is a spreadsheet, or there was a spreadsheet. It valued all the values. It valued all the values of of the in where the real point differentiator differentiator comes from is the amount of masts and the ability. Those yep. are the biggest things that were valued um uh in a game and then and then you end up having to do stuff where like you think an ability is super super powerful and you rate it really high and then you play it and you're like wow that's ability just in reality is not as powerful as i thought so i'm going to bring it down a little bit put this ship more akin to these other ships and that's what i would get a lot from play testers i would get you know this ship with this combination of things you know uh, is really kind of like this ship from three sets ago that has a combination of things, just the power, the the 
let's just say the cannons are different and you'd be like oh wow that's uh yeah i must have missed i've misvalued something i maybe you know it's a variant on an ability and i thought it would be more powerful than it was so that's that's the testing phase you know i can design all kinds of i could still design a pirate ship if you wanted me to but in the testing phase when it comes out it's got to fit the game you know and the game already existed by the time you know south china seas came out if we're going to introduce an entirely new type of ship then it needs to fit with the other ships it can't win the game because you're yeah. playing that one ship so yeah you got to have balance in the compatibility. So, okay. So to wrap up that, so there was the formula from the start and then that obviously persisted. Yeah. And like I sets. said, I got to tell you right now, I don't remember if it was like, I think Mike and James, James is a mathematical genius. So I think he may have come up with the initial formula, but I, I wouldn't be able to tell you whether how much of it was still standing by the time, you know, we got to the point where we needed to do like revolution, you know, we may have yeah. tweaked it so often by that it. point. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. And then we started doing weird stuff like forts and different types of crew that had different kinds of abilities. And, you know, you've, you've seen it, you know, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yeah. So you don't know if that formula is still out there somewhere or if someone's still, Oh, I'm it. sure it's someplace. There's yeah. some whiz kids person. I had a I had a laptop my laptop that I used at WizKids my home got broken into way back like 2010 or 11 or no damn maybe, I, maybe even sooner than that maybe like 2008 or something my home got broken into and they stole my computer unfortunately Jeez. and so if I had it it would have been on that old computer and I've had a bunch of computers since then but I, I and it may you know there may be a an old floppy disk or a you know a, a Mac. <laughs> A Mac hard disk someplace nice. down in my basement that has some in there. I'll have to check sometime. Nice. If I find it, I'll let you know. Yeah. Love <laughs> it. <laughs> what was your general philosophy around creating the different sets? Did you want the factions of each set to revolve more around the theme of the set, like the location and time period, or like the ongoing faction theme, like where the English were established? Uh, yeah, that's, the a good, that's a good question. Um, Uh, so as you can, if you heard, I'm going to speak very highly of Jordan almost always. Jordan, um, was one of these great guys who, um, wanted to push the envelope. Um, and so, uh, you know, Spanish main was the three factions. Adding the French was no big deal. That was a historical first group fighting in the, in the region. And then as we started to go, we realized we were already kind of, we were setting an example. Okay, so we were telling a, and also Jorn, Jorn fully believes, if you know anything about Battletech, you know anything about Shadowrun, and, and that is the world exists that the game is in. Okay, so let's just say that. So we are making an alt history world with Spanish main. Then we, you know, because some of those characters, they appear in multiple sets. They have ongoing storylines, even if it's, you know, three sentences in Spanish main and three more in Crimson Coast. We kind of maintain that kind of story, characters, they're driven, they have a history. Um, when By the time we got to Revolution, because Crimson Coast, like I said, I think the forts were actually already pre-designed. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, and then adding the French was simple. You know, I mean, it was not a big thing because we were going to put... When we did Spanish Main, we were actually going to have the French in that game, but three factions, four factions also... From a sales standpoint and a marketing standpoint, that was like a bridge too far, I think, a little bit. So we hmm. we pulled them. So like Crimson Coast is really like a 1.5 rather than a release 2, if you will. Yep. Um, but by the time we got to Revolution, it was like, okay, we need, um, we need two things moving on. We need the world to be what's the next phase of that world. So you have the Age of Sail with Spanish Main. Then you have the kind of the age of colonization with Crimson Coast. And then we went with the age of revolution with Pirates of the Revolution. So, you know, uh, it was like that's kind of the age of sale storyline from like 1500 to 1700, if you will. Um, 17, uh, well, 1812, because I really love the War of 1812. <laughs> so it kind of goes through the, that period of time. Um, 
And then after that, it was like, okay, well, we can't move forward. And here's a crazy story. This is a total adjunct story that I'm sure everybody's going to go, what? Jordan would have loved for us to continue that tracking so that the next set after Age of Revolution would have been the middle 1800s with like the experimental metal ships that started happening to take it all the way up to the Dreadnought era. For those who don't know the Dreadnought era, the Dreadnought era went went basically to pre-World War One. Jordan loved that Dreadnought era where they decided the problem with the Dreadnought era and past the Revolution era is no one's looking for treasure on mysterious islands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and in fact, the whole point of the further and further almost takes you more into this kind of battle tech mindset of movement and distance matters more than up close and personal which we're we're made a thing by the way this is something i'm very very proud of that we made a boardless board game okay yes. so yep. all right so that's that's me i did that nice. so that's the coolest part um <laughs> but the the uh uh once you get past the revolution point the metal ships start coming in we had we didn't want to go there. We wanted to keep it in the the wooden ship age of sail, or at least in those themed times, if you will. Yes. Uh, because the minute you go to the metal ships, you run into three problems. One is the combat is, is at a distance. It's yes. not it's not up close and personal. It's more like battle tech, if you will. Second thing that was a big problem is that's when they started to do uh uh, that's when they started to round their metal. <laughs> yeah. The cool thing about wood was wood was, you know, we can make these kinds of ships. When you start getting into the dreadnoughts and they have, they have like circular gun things and the guns come out in giant, you know, too. We don't have to show a gun out of this, but a dreadnought, that was their whole point was big guns. Yeah. The bigger the guns, the further distance away you can shoot. So while Jordan loved that period of time, and man, he can go on and on talking about the the the, the Russian-Japanese conflict that was the first real battle like this, um, it didn't make any sense for our game. It literally, so we actually had to talk him out of that, and we actually spent some time looking at designing something like that using plastic, so like more of a clicks-based game. Hmm. Um, and so my take back to him was, wait, there's other piracy around the world that we have done nothing with and he's like what are you talking about i'm like there's the gold coast of africa i have a game called um blackbeard it's an old avalon hill board game i love the hell out of that game because it, it introduced all these other areas so the south china sea and the gold coast of africa and all this stuff so we were like this is actually pretty cool we have this other thing so that's barbary coast comes right out of playing blackbeard South China Sea comes right out of that. Now, at that point, we are now a big enough famous game. So in those cases, the goal was make sure we do Age of Sail, make sure we find other points in the Age of Sail realm from 1500s to 17 to the early 1800s, and, and, then, and then concept their ships to be what their ships would have looked like, those the Corsairs and then the Junks, and do this whole kind of push of this world of piracy as opposed to the Spanish main of piracy, if you will. So those came out of just me trying to find better other places to do piracy. Then Davy Jones happened. And Davy Jones happened because Davy Jones was a giant movie. So the, the, <laughs> third, movie, the third movie had come out. Disney came to us. I will tell you, if you are a game designer and Disney says, hey, we'd like to work with you on a game, the answer should always be yes. <laughs> and, and we got that. So that was cool. That was a real cool honor for me to work with Disney. The first time that I got to work with Disney, I now do it as a daily occurrence. But back then, it was really cool. Um and and so that then the mysterious islands i believe that was seth pushing me to do jules verne again trying to figure out ways to do now that we've introduced kind of like the cursed uh, concept and all that kind of stuff we went with that um uh frozen north was because uh again 
there's also another element to this, and that's what people are telling you. <laughs> so we're getting feedback whenever we go to shows, uh, whenever we meet with fans and say, oh, what about this? And, you know, oh, I love Vikings. And I'm like, Vikings, hey, that's a pretty good one. We haven't done anything with those. You know, what kind of ship do they have? So I do deep dive into Viking culture and Viking ships. They were they were more pillagers than than, than the other things. So their, their abilities need to kind of reflect that. Their ships are... Uh, they weren't necessarily deep sea sailing ships like the French and the British. So we needed to constantly, you know, you needed to constantly do that kind of stuff. By this time, I mean, by the time, I mean, just after, after, uh, by the time Barbary Coast came out and we were introducing new ship types on a regular basis, like in every set, then that has to be something that we consider. What's the new ship type? How do we fit it into the set? Do we retire a ship type? You know, every ship. You know, we need to make sure that our molds, that's the other thing. We have to make sure that the mold, the molds are, yep. are not molds in the sense of a plastic mold. They're basically a giant piece of insanely sharp steel yep. that cuts through the styrene. And so that wears out after, after time. So yep. we have to like constantly be in a position of what set is this going to wear out on? What wow. do we need to do? And so it wore out around the Davy Jones period. Hmm. which is why we shifted and there's another reason too but yeah. the bottom line is is that we're you know constantly playing that ed then then frozen north came out and then ocean's edge and then the cursed stuff with the uh cursed faction was just a rise after um with mysterious islands maybe or maybe ocean's edge at this point jordan was no longer with with whiz kids uh and the company wanted to try to make an ip out of this world the problem is is that if you look through the ip of this world it's all historical figures so that's why some of the characters from spanish main and crimson coast come back in a, like new forms a new identity so that we can say no you know we are you know here are the characters we're pushing and with this kind of mindset it never happened. Pirates, it was really funny. Pirates, like, were all the talk from the, the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy. But even by the time the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out, people were not talking about pirates so much anymore. It's hard to turn pirates into a TV show. So it was pre-Netflix, Amazon, blah, 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 in spending a million dollars on, on theme stuff. So it kind of just went away, you know, in this kind of, you know, the, yeah, there was an IP there. And so the later ones, the impetus was how do we focus on our characters that we're creating and the storyline that we're creating as opposed to his, history. But up until then, it was literally like, like up until Davy Jones, it was like, how do we spread the world of piracy around? After Davy Jones, it became like, how do we find cool stories to tell within a pirate world if you know you will and keep it in that kind of same time zone timeline but now add more uh fictional elements to it i mean even though it's it's vikings they were not really pirates of that they were way before that period of time so we have to kind of say no they're still around and you know if we did a world map you know the the pirate nations of the nordic would still be a thing you know and that kind of stuff but we, you know and then and then ocean's edge was the you know the beginning of just the total mystery stuff so there yeah. you go yeah so funny. it's that was the the that was the the thought process of creating those sets so i don't necessarily know it's not like we came up with a bunch of mechanics and said oh my god we need a theme how are we going to do it the theme almost always came first um, and then we, then we, you know, and again, I will tell this to people who don't know this process. You know, if I come up with a theme, I got to sell it to the art team. I got to sell it to the marketing team. I got to send it to my brand manager. And, and up until a, cer a certain point, I had to sell to Jordan. So I couldn't just come out with a, Hey, let's do, you know, pirates all named Bill, because that would never fly. You know, they would be like, that's boring and silly. And I'm like, okay, but if I, you know, so I go, okay, let's do Barbary Coast. Here's the cool ship I'd like to do. Here's the cool pirates that were of that era, you know, you know, and so you, I would have to put together effectively a, a pitch document internally to kind of get them to, to understand the direction I was going in. And at that point, then that just basically, you know, when you're talking to the, our team um, and even our marketing team, the minute you say, you know, you show them a pitch document, they're already spinning a hundred miles an hour off, off that kind of stuff. So that was kind of cool. That was the process I used for Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, I use it now, 
uh, still to this day because uh, like i said i i want feedback i want to know what people are thinking so um you know yeah love it yeah that's really fascinating that's interesting that um jordan was going to push it into a more of a chronological direction i think it's good that it stayed a little bit more like historical within the age of sale just because for me I feel like there's a suspension of disbelief when you have dreadnoughts going against ships of the line and it's just, they should always well, win. Well, that was, you know, the, I mean? that was the, you know, yes. Yeah. And I, it's not, don't, don't make it sound like he was not thinking it through. What he was yeah. thinking was it would be an, a kind of an evolutionary game, if you will. Okay. So uh, we would come out with the next type of pocket model game, if you will, Yeah. Do, using these other ships. It would have meant that the, uh, Spanish main, the high sales period, would be a contained game unit that you would just play amongst those pieces. And then this new game would be a continuation of that maybe storyline uh, or, or characters or something like that in this new thing. Yeah, it, I agree that in the long run, it, I mean, we made the right decision, but that's the kind of stuff that you, again, throw into the hopper to see which way to go. I mean, it ended up forging us to do a bunch of other things at WizKids. Uh, but that, you know, that you got to start something, you know. You can't just go, okay, we're going to make Pirates of the Spanish Main, and 20 sets later, you know, what are we going to do? You just make the first one, and if it's successful, I mean, we had no idea, literally no idea it was going to be successful because nobody had done it before. Yep. Uh, so, you know, and as a collectible model and a board game and the whole nine yards. So it was or a, a collectible model tabletop game. It just was, you know. It was surprisingly awesome. Yeah, yeah, it did incredibly well. So won awards and everything. So yeah, amazing. All right, that concludes this part of the interview with the amazing Pirates game designer, Mike Mulvihill. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, whether that's a comment on YouTube, follow-up questions in the thread at Pirates with Ben, or commentary on Discord or Facebook. Make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. There are links in the description for this episode where you can find some of the links and resources I used, and there's also an affiliate link to buy Pirate CSG items on eBay. Consider using that link as a way to support all my efforts to keep the game alive and hopefully even revive it as well. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.